Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. In this episode, I'm joined by the Wall Street Journal's Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg to talk about their new book, The Club, how the English Premier League became the wildest, richest, most disruptive force in sports. I think you'll really enjoy it. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Our guests today are Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg, both of the Wall Street Journal. They have co-written a terrific new book called The Club, How the English Premier League Became the Wildest, Richest, Most Disruptive Force in Sports. The book is on sale December 4th. Guys, thanks for joining me, and congratulations on a very fun read. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. So thanks for being in studio here as well. Appreciate that. Uh, and it's, it's really cool, a cool feeling when you have a book that's about to come out. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I follow soccer closely, and I learned a lot in this book. For starters, how did the idea come together? And to put a finer point on it, what is this book and what is it not? I mean, I think the uh, it's one of those things where the um, idea for the book was kind of bubbling on um, for a while. Um, we worked closely together at the journal on the journal soccer coverage. Um, I was Josh's editor for a while. And so we had kind of batted back and forth some ideas about doing a book on the Premier League. And when it turned 25, it seemed like that was the kind of right moment to sort of write what is a kind of snapshot of you know, the, the league at that period and, and sort of look back on the kind of remarkable changes and stuff that had affected in, in England and in the sport in general. Um, so that was kind of how the idea came about. And, um, you know, we actually ended up writing the book very quickly. So, you know, we sort of turned it around in the space of about 18 months from, from sort of conception to publication. And and what we wanted to do with it, because the the Premier League has so much history and, you know, you could write a million different histories of it. You could come at it from a history of uh, business, as we've done in, in large part, or you can come at it as a history of tactics or football or of just the craziness. And we've tried to pack a lot of that in, too. Um, and so really, we've tried to explain above all else how it is that this thing that came together in 1992 out of the collective ambition of a few owners who decided, you know what, we really want to make more money from television. We need to haul the, the Premier League out of the 1800s or, or English soccer out of the 1800s or or were still the 1980s um, and into something modern. And then how from, say, four or five people coming together in these secret meetings to create it, created this international sports and entertainment behemoth. You know, it's in 185 countries every weekend, um, and there, there really is it really is the, the biggest show in town as far as live sports are concerned. So how much of this book is new material? I mean, I think it's, um, you know, we, we, we tried to make sure that everything that went in the book, we had kind of some value added. So the kind of broad, like, brushstrokes of the, of the history of the Premier League are well known. It's no surprise to anyone that Man U won a bunch of titles early on and Leicester City had a miracle championship, you know, a couple of years ago. But I think that where, you know, where possible, we try to provide kind of exclusive and new detail 
to all those um, to, to all those um, events. So that meant that we spoke to um, over a hundred people for the uh, during the course of um, researching the book. Um, and you know, we we were really lucky with the access that we were able to get because. I think we spoke to the key decision makers at all six of the, um, you know, the current big six clubs. And, you know, a lot of those guys don't don't really make a habit of speaking to the media very often. So, you know, we were we were very lucky to be able to get that. And, um, you know, there are there are um, I think, you know, you said that you're someone who's followed soccer, you know, professionally. And and there are things in there that you learn. So I think it's, um, you know, I think people will 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 learn a ton from it no matter how closely i think it will answer a lot of questions you know we a lot of the feedback we've had is that it answered a lot of questions that people had about the sort of early days of the premier league and how we got to where we are now um but i think even people who you know we we, we found that we were you know stunned to learn a lot of the stuff that ended up in the book you know there was a lot of um background and context and and um kind of uh you know alternative history type stuff that we didn't really know about beforehand Throw our listeners a couple of nuggets. Uh, I don't want you giving away too much, but like, what are some things that you learned that you're like, oh, holy cow? Um, well, one, for instance, that's that's been in the news recently is when we talk about Manchester City, and we've heard a lot about kind of the financial chicanery that happens around that club and around that that empire. But what we were really interested to learn about was kind of the the philosophy and the the methods for building this empire because it's really quite radical what they're doing um you know building that what they see as the first multinational of sports and what we hadn't realized was the that this was an explicit project from the very beginning that they came in saw a blank slate in manchester and said you know what we're going to build we're not just going to take over the premier league we're immediately going to grow this thing at such an incredible speed that our rivals are not going to be the other 19 Premier League clubs. They're going to be Disney and Amazon. Mm. We're going to be this this entertainment provider. Mm. And if that means, you know, messing up the Premier League's competitive balance, as they've been accused of doing, um, then so be it. And also part of that's internationalization, right? So they own teams, obviously, in New York, uh, Australia. Do they own a team in Japan? They They have a kind of branding partnership with one in Japan. They have a team in Uruguay, okay. um, another in, yeah in Spain. Yeah, I mean th- 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 they were actually very explicit with us that their ambition when when they started this project was to create the first multinational in sports. Um, you know that's yeah that was their their goal and and it's it's one of those things where I think when you're following the Premier League week in week out, it's you can't kind of see the wood for the trees. So mm. sometimes the kind of scale of their ambition, you know isn't necessarily apparent but when you kind of pull back and look at it from sort of 30,000 feet it's really kind of remarkable what they've done and 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 the sort of reach and scope that they saw the Premier League could give them to um you know to to pull off this project so some of the people you interview exclusively for your book Arsene Wenger Sir Alex Ferguson Daniel Levy John W Henry among others how tough was it getting some of these interviews um it was it was you know it was tough um there was a lot of um plugging away and you know just um reaching out in you know kind of more in hope than expectation yeah. but i think you know we were very lucky that um a lot of the american owners of teams were um very good to us from the word go i think mm-hmm. you know i think it's 
one of the areas where our um, Wall Street Journal credentials helped us. Um, right. You know, they a lot of them read the journal, so they were kind of familiar with maybe some of the stories we'd done or, or the journal's kind of standards. And then once we had people like um, John Henry on board, um, you know, that helped open doors to other members of, you know, other top clubs. And, and then when you have sort of four or five of the big six and you go to, you know, Tottenham and say, would Daniel Levy like to speak to us? He's the only one that hasn't. Then He didn't drive know, a hard bargain? He's, I mean, he kept us waiting till, <laughs> I will say, he kept us waiting until the transfer window had closed because he didn't want to uh, waste any time talking to us when he could have been uh, driving up the price for one of his players. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, so he was, you know, it, it, it was, it all sort of started to come together. And, and like I say, we, you know, a lot of, as well, a lot of the early Premier League owners, um, guys like David Dean, you know, vouched for us. Um, and David Dean is like, mate, you know, one of the most connected people in world football, obviously. So um, that, that really helped us. He was a big, a big um, help early on, especially, you know, in some of that stuff, you know, again, when you talk about some of the kind of lessons that we learned, um, I think one of the one of the things that really surprised us was how much of the kind of early formation of the Premier League was based on, um, you know, it was lifted straight from the NFL. How many of the early, you know, the, the guys who, who broke away and formed the Premier League originally, David Dean, Martin Edwards, Irving Scholar, who was the owner of Tottenham uh, back in the late 80s, um, they all came across and watched NFL games and were totally blown away by the, you know, um, kind of commercialization and, and, and um you know, corporate marketing and all that stuff, um, and just lifted it wholesale. Just, in, just stuck it on English soccer, and uh. and it wasn't just the the stuff from thirty thousand feet that they they weren't. You know, it wasn't just let's come over and oh, this marketing culture seems like it could appeal to us or work in England. They were lifting things like, hey, the bathrooms at NFL stadiums are great. Let's David have Dean these. had an obsession with this. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the bathrooms became his kind of like holy war of English <laughs> soccer. Where, I mean, if, it, if you had been to an English soccer stadium in the 1980s and used the bathroom there, they were uh, pretty, uh, pretty treacherous. But um, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, kind of the, the whole idea that, that um, you know, eradicating the kind of nastier elements of of um you know hooliganism and that sort of thing would would be easier if the the stadiums that you you know house these people in were were more um you know were a kind of greater better standard so you know better standard of behavior better standard of stadium promotes a better standard of behavior from the fans and that's something that arsenal experienced but yeah i mean the the, the bathrooms i mean i i think uh Marlon edwards came over and watched the uh, the jets play the raiders and loved the raiders jersey so much that he you know, Manchester United had a black jersey like two years later or whatever it was. I mean, it, you know, they were just just ripping wholesale and and, um, and grabbing ideas from the NFL and, and taking them back to England. But um, but yeah, those early guys in, of the the early formation of the Premier League was super helpful. One thing I was going to ask you about too. It's very clear that Murdoch was starting B Sky B right around this time, mm. or at least wanted to make it big and eventually decided this was not something that was preordained that he really needed big time sports to be a part of building that now in the chronology his nfl acquisition for fox the start of fox in america actually took place after the start of the premier league that's right so is that one area where actually it was in reverse yeah and 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 I think maybe you know I think now the, it's 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 in when the you know the NFL has international ambitions and I think now they look at the Premier League and, and its kind of global popularity and and the way it's been able to sort of leverage its brand around the world as as, as uh, 
you know, a model for how they might be able to do it. But yeah, I, it's it's funny. Mur- uh, Rupert Murdoch is obviously, I mean, his kind of TV networks have been synonymous with sports, um, live sports coverage. But um, Sky was, you know, B- Sky as it became, B Sky B as it was then, um, and the Premier League was really his kind of first big, um, you know, gamble on live sports, mm-hmm. um, transforming that property because. Uh, Sky was, you know, back in the early 1990s, was a, a fledgling network that was losing, you know, a million pounds a week, I think it was. And um, it was the Premier League that kind of really helped transform that. They, uh, Rupert Murdoch, you know, saw the um, power of, of, of sports. And it was actually something that he had experienced before, right? He, he, he had had a similar problem when he took over the Sun tabloid in Britain back in the 1970s. And that was a failing newspaper that no one was reading and he stuck in a dozen pages of soccer every day and all of a sudden it was the most popular newspaper in Britain. So he he kind of took that lesson and the, the British love for soccer and, and recognized that that was the key to, to making his satellite TV network a hit there. Um, why the NFL? Why not the NBA? Like, wh- Why do you think they saw what was happening in the NFL and tried to copy it? Uh, and in a lot of ways, it was pure circumstance. Um, you know, David Dean married an American woman and wound up spending a lot of time in Miami at a time when the Dolphins were good. Mm-hmm. Um, Irving Scholar was coming to New York a lot and had a connection, I believe, to the owner of the Jets and started going to games with him. Uh, it really is one of those things where they came over and this was the this was kind of the, the biggest show available to them. And in a way that maybe the NBA became later the NFL really captured that sort of American excess that uh, that spoke to a lot of British entrepreneurs. Um, Even O.J. Simpson makes an appearance. Exactly. <laughs> Irving Scholar comes over and he was trying to talk about talk to the, Pete Rozelle, the NFL commissioner, about setting up a, a kind of exhibition rematch of the Super Bowl in London. This is years before the NFL started coming over regularly. And... Um, He's told, uh, listen, this guy uh, from the league office is going to come and put you in touch and uh, he's going to take you out the night before. They go out. He, he, he goes out with uh, this ex-player and his wife and finds out, hey, everyone's taking a picture of this guy on the street. This is O.J. Simpson. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> um, I'm curious just as a writer from a, a craft perspective, how did you split up the writing? Uh, it, it was kind of an, it was interesting, be, and it was hel- really helpful. First of all, that we had a pre-existing writing relationship. Mm-hmm. We'd covered the World Cup together before, as John said, he'd been my editor, so we, we knew each other's styles and foibles and and writing intimately. Um, and then as we as we wrote it, we spent a lot of time on the phone. Mm-hmm. First of all, um, John is based in New York. I'm based in London. And so we would spend a lot of time sketching out chapters in their entirety first. Um, uh, Not so much that it became paint by numbers, but Mm. so much so that we knew which idea needed to flow into which idea. Mm. And then we would divide that up, write sections, and then as soon as we were done with them, flip them to each other. Hmm. And then just keep writing through and going back and forth so that it was one voice. Right. I mean, the the other thing that helped was that um, the, the book now has i think it's around about 30 chapters but when we the first draft of the book was just 10 chapters okay and so yeah we we kind of split those um and we would each do one chapter and each chapter was i don't know 10,000 words or something but yeah we 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 spoke i mean we spoke so much before we kind of put 
not pen to paper, but started tapping on the keyboard that we had like the transition from almost, you know, every idea to the next one down pat so that we kind of both knew exactly where the chapter was starting and where it was, how it would get to where it was ending up. And then, um, you know, and then it was just a case of tossing them back and forth between us to sort of edit them. And and we've gone, we went back and forth over the set, over the book so many times mm-hmm. that large chunks of the book, we genuinely could not tell you who first set, put them up, who first set them down. I, I couldn't tell you. No. Well, I, not only is it well written, but I can't tell who wrote what. <laughs> you know, I can't say that's right. a John chapter, that's a Josh chapter. Right. So, nice work. <laughs> um, so, one thing that, you know, with the Premier League that I find interesting is how well it has done. And yet, they haven't won the Champions League all that much in recent years. Um, they haven't had the world's best player, as you point out, since probably 2008 with Cristiano Ronaldo. How have they handled those things? Um, it's interesting. We, we, the Cristiano Ronaldo transfer to Real Madrid was a, was a significant moment because that really is, as you point out, the, the last time the best player in the world, the clear best player in the world, played in the Premier League. Um, but at that point, the Premier League kind of uh, maybe global narrative, to put it that way, had already reached a tipping point. Um, the clubs were already the richest in Europe. Their TV deals were already going up by crazy percentages every cycle. Um, and there came a point where the action in the Premier League became so so um, compelling that it almost didn't need the best players anymore. And so that that narrative fed into itself and it was able to, to truck on with everyone else catching up. If When the Premier League decided this is more important than the Champions League, it got enough people, enough important people in soccer who all happened to live in England to buy into that. And that became the measure. Right. It's almost like a, a, a soap opera where the initial cast has moved on, but they just get in new <laughs> actors and the whole thing keeps rolling and no one sort of seems to pay, pay any attention. But but it's funny because I think, at the, you know, in the years after Cristiano Ronaldo's departure, I think a bunch of the top clubs were worried about the fact that the best players in the world were no longer playing in the Premier League. And then it gradually dawned on them that it really didn't matter, that the the, the popularity, and certainly as far as the owners were concerned, I, I mean, the managers probably grumble about it to this day, but as far as the owners were concerned, they could see that it wasn't sort of damaging their product in a way that was, you know, irreparable. So they kind of, you know, became sort of content with the fact that the best players in the world would play elsewhere, but their, their, the Premier League was still the best product. I think now that kind of that the absence of the best players in the world from English soccer has like resurfaced and Mm. it has become an issue that some of the clubs specifically Manchester City are worried about and Mm. are concerned about and are intent you know are anxious to reverse and they want to bring those those um, players back which is why there is sort of you know pushback and disagreement amongst some of the clubs about how revenues are divided and and why the top clubs in the league only earn, you know, X percent more than the bottom clubs, whereas in other leagues around the world, you know, in Spain, for instance, Barcelona and Madrid take so much of the um, overall pie that um, they can afford to have, you know, t- uh, squads full of the world's best players, whereas, you know, that's not quite so easy in England. So I, I think that that, that is a, one of these kind of, again, a lot of the sort of issues that we discovered as we were reporting the book the issues that like inspired the 
formation of the Premier League in the, in the first place, the sort of un, unhappiness with the amount of revenue they were getting from TV and, and the fact that they felt they were being dragged down by, by smaller clubs in lower divisions. Those same forces that created the breakaway of the Premier League are sort of very slowly bubbling to the surface again now. Mm. And, and you're starting to see the sort of what was a very tight group of 20 clubs, albeit three of them changed every year. There was a kind of consensus and, and unanimous agreement about the kind of basic principles of the Premier League and that mm -hmm. founder's charter that they signed all those years ago that set up the revenue sharing and that sort of thing. There are now divisions about that. And, and that was kind of one of the um, neat threads that we felt they kind of made a, a neat circle in the book was that, that those divisions are now sort of resurfacing. NBC Sports gets the Premier League rights in the United States. You devote some space to this in your book. Um, what kind of an influence has that had, do you think, on, on the growth of the Premier League here? Um, the Premier League clubs realized it before the league itself, but America, the American market was always kind of the holy grail. Um, and there were several abortive efforts to, to come over here and, and grab a piece of that. Uh, you probably remember Man United coming over in the late 90s deciding we're going to have a partnership with the Yankees. Right. And that meant maybe selling some United shirts over here and some Yankee caps over there. But basically no one knew what it was for and it didn't really, nothing really came of it. Um, but the clubs started coming over by themselves and, and organizing friendlies over here in the summer. But for the league, really conquering the American market because that is the, the preeminent sports market in the world – uh, was a priority and they were on ESPN uh, they were on Fox for a while and but the NBC deal something clicked about the relationship between the Premier League and and the way the and the way NBC was prepared to produce it um, and the resources it was able to commit that that just hit sort of the all the right notes and the Premier League became so pleased with it that they decided to make an exception because international rights are sold in three-year deals and decided, you know what, we're going to re-up with NBC for six years because they're so pleased with the job that NBC does. And also NBC was prepared to pay a billion dollars. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, the U.S. market was also a kind of holy grail for um, Richard Scudamore, the, the Premier League chairman, who had worked in the U.S. before he became, uh, before he went back to work for the Premier League and was, is kind of... Um, American file and 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 um, yeah, it was like his his. I mean, his eyes were trained across the Atlantic for a long time before they struck that that billion dollar deal. But that without that's a, I mean, it's a definitely a milestone moment in the Premier League's growth. I think at this point, just about everyone agrees in the U.S. and and this is something it's very hard to find consensus among soccer fans in the U.S. as you guys well know. The NBC's done a very good job mm. with the Premier League. One question I have, and, and I, this does, does come up in your book, is do you think part of it is because all of their, nearly all of their broadcasters have British accents? Are we still in that phase where that's something, like part of me feels like we shouldn't need to be in that phase, but is that what's happening? I mean, I think, I think that is, I think, I think one of the, one of the, um, Premier League's biggest selling points is its authenticity. It feels you can feel the how much it matters to the fans in the stadium. Even watching um, 
on a TV screen thousands of miles away. And I think that the um, the sort of the tribal nature of of football and um, you know that kind of degree of authenticity is something that people also want in the broadcast, even if they don't necessarily know that they want it. So it's only when you have something kind of slightly different that people maybe don't realize. So I think that's sometimes where, you know, the accent helps because it when you when you tune in to watch English football, for whatever reason, you expect to hear an English accent describing it. I, I, is my is my my guess. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing as well. I think a lot of people and I may be wrong here, but I think a lot of people, especially in the US, see the Premier League as kind of something slightly exotic and enjoy it by opposition to what is on offer in the States. So, you know, you may be a college football fan, but with college football, you're getting a sort of full college, very package full of Americana and it's five hours long and you're getting ads for trucks and it's all very kind of down home. Whereas if you're watching the Premier League, it's, it's, it, there's a different vibe to it from the beginning. One, it's in the morning. Mm. Uh, it, it fits a sort of different attention span because it's done in two hours. And you are there is a certain Anglophilia in America that sort of makes people look across the Atlantic and think, hey, that's a, that's a different thing. And I like all of what it's offering because it is different to what I know. Right. College football, you know, with... British commentators would feel weird. <laughs> it just would. I mean, <laughs> I think part of me is like the American in me, in me wishes that authentic didn't necessarily mean like something that's not an American accent. Yes. But I also can separate myself from that. I'm not naive. I, th I, I honestly do think this may be part of the appeal. But NBC has done a good job weaving in some American accents as well. Right. And I think they're, pretty uh, add a pretty good balance um i don't know how much it would change if they sort of shifted it one way or the other right okay, they haven't tried that experiment yet but right. if it went that way it, it would be interesting to see what the reaction would be yeah it's i mean it, it, it's sort of it's it's um it's sort of slowly changing things back home though as well josh right mm -hmm. i mean you, you went to we actually have um for the, um, the epilogue of the book is is um, a scene from a, a Premier League game towards the end of last season, and um, you know the NBC crew were the were the last you know crew on the on the Wembley Stadium pitch before kickoff. You know they're right sort of right in the center circle until you know the, the fireworks come up and the players come out or whatever. So yeah. I mean it's you know it's it, it's it's starting to um, it's starting to sort of become noticeable in, in England. Even. Yeah. One of the stories that we touched on earlier, is these football league stories that we've seen recently under Spiegel and elsewhere, um, you know, it included plans, some real details on plans for a potential breakaway league in Europe with the very top clubs, the biggest ones in Europe from different countries. What's your sense on the actual possibilities there, especially when you're including potentially several of these clubs in England? The idea has been around long enough now that I think we know it's not the idea itself is not going away. Um, the logistics of making it happen in the next two or three years are extremely complicated. That there's a legal minefield there that involves, for in, in the Premier League at least, 
the club is being tied down under their current agreement till at least 2021. Mm. Um, beyond that, whether you, we start to see people challenging those and, you know, clubs like Manchester City, we know are prepared to spend on legal fees to, to the extent that they spend on players. You know, this is, it is a bottomless pit of money uh, in that club. So they can do kind of whatever they want in that respect. Um, so I don't think we're any closer right now to seeing the Premier League clubs breaking away from the current structure, but there is definitely a groundswell of support for an idea that will change the Premier League as we know it. Yeah, I mean, my sense, and just, you know, from speaking, we've spoken to, you know, executives at, at most Premier League clubs and have addressed this issue with almost all of them. My sense is that um, any kind of break breakaway Super League w- wouldn't be as much a breakaway as a kind of slow, gradual transition mm. that starts off almost imperceptibly, but sort of ends up in a situation where we end up, you know, we, we kind of, almost get to a Super League without realising how we got there. Mm. I think that there'll be, you know, some Champions League games will be staged on Saturdays and Sundays rather than midweek. I think that you could see, you know, certain teams receive automatic berths in the Champions League every season. I think it'll be that sort of thing where rather than the kind of very dramatic breakaway that the that, that forged the Premier League 25 years ago, I think it'll be a sort of much more gradual move in this instance where kind of all of a sudden we'll reala- you'll realise that actually the Champions League games now happen on weekends and, oh, isn't that funny? Manchester United have an automatic berth and, you know, and, and all of a sudden those, it will be a, it will be a kind of bigger version of the Champions I think it'll be the Champions League kind of plus and, okay. and so I, I think that is sort of how it will happen. And it's one of those things as well where it, it sort of seems... Um, as though it, it, you know, impossible to imagine at times. You know, you can't think how what what would football look like if, you know, the the Premier League, the best teams left the Premier League. Uh, but I think, you know, I think in the end they will come sort of there will be this sort of compromise where they will continue to play domestically, but but the focus will kind of switch to Europe. Hmm. Interesting. And and just to pick up on the the point about automatic births is not insignificant. That is really the the big the thing that freaks out owners the most uh, when they invest in the Premier League is the possibility that they're not guaranteed a seat at the top table, whether that's the Champions League or even the threat of relegation from the Premier League. Um, you know, American owners have have said it in private for years. They would love to board up the trap door. Uh, in the Premier League and know that their investment is safe because what they what they all say is you can't possibly understand the stress and the the inability to plan for the future that comes with even the possibility of relegation because if you're not in the big six right now basically any of the other 14 could be relegated in any given season such as the the kind of volatile nature of of a Premier League season um and the same with the Champions League, where there is all that money out there and all that potential revenue. If they think, oh, we're going to miss out on it for a season or two, that suddenly changes the whole outlook for the business. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the guaranteed spots is really a, a big sticking point for them. Which also gives you a window into why MLS owners don't want relegation in their league. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but, and it's also, you know, it's the it's the difficulty of sort of any kind of long-term planning is the, is the problem you know that the, the 
the kind of advances that the, that um, Major League Soccer has made over the last 20 years would be almost impossible to affect in the Premier League in that kind of you know top-down way because there is just no it, it, the actors at the bottom just aren't interested in doing things for the benefit of the league in a whole. They, they, it is very self-interested. Remarkable how many of the owners that we spoke to recognize that they're often making bad decisions, but feel like compelled to make them anyway because it's kind of a zero-sum game. That, that, that if they do this, then at least you know West Ham can't do it, or you know Tottenham can't do it, or whatever. So it's 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 the the kind of naked self-interest that rules the Premier League is makes that sort of planning hard. Uh, that really is remarkable. We spoke to, to some owners that who asked not to be named uh, in connection to relegation, but who have been in relegation battles. And these are people who made millions and millions of dollars in other businesses, you know, in high finance and things like that, and know they're throwing good money after bad when they're in the relegation battle. You know, they go and make a controversial hire as a manager. Uh, they go and sign a player who may have real issues, either with motivation or <laughs> with age or injury, but just to, to do something and to be seen to be doing something for the fans, because otherwise the fans are at your throat. And once that turns, there's no winning them back. You mentioned Richard Scudamore, longtime chief executive of the Premier League. Uh, he's finishing up. Uh, they've recently named his replacement what do you think people will say about Scudamore's tenure? What stands out the most? And then what can you tell us about his replacement? I mean, I think I think he will be remembered as the um, great salesman of English football. Um, he's the man who was brought in really with, with little background in football administration just a couple of years in, at, at the FA, um, but, a big, but a long history as a salesman. And he recognized that the way the league was selling itself both domestically and around the world was not as effective as it could be and basically made that his mission he the role of chief executive as he envisaged it was purely as a salesman um he wasn't really interested in you know ruling making sort of sweeping rulings about player at player behavior or the way the clubs conduct themselves he saw himself first and foremost as a salesman and under his under his tenure the you know the, the the values of the premier league skyrocketed so i think he will be remembered in that way i think that he will also be remembered as the chairman who was in charge of english football at a time when it's kind of not lost its soul but it kind of gradually moved away it sort of almost left the fans behind or, or there it's the, it's the beginning of the, the feeling that that some fans have been left behind behind by the kind of globalization of the premier league that happened under his watch um again how much he's responsible for that versus how much that's just sort of modern life and the globalized world um you know uh, having its impact on english football um, who knows? But I think I think those are the sort of twin things that he'll be remembered for. Um, the man who kind of revolutionized the way the Premier League sold itself, which in itself is kind of remarkable. We get into this in the book, but he, he kind of basically ran the uh, Premier League offices as like a village post office where he was sort of personally calling the uh, various broadcasters every day, send them handwritten notes at the end of their... Um, at the end of their tenures, um, and only six, sort of five or six people working on his on his team, selling rights around the world, 192 countries or whatever it is. So, um, 
Um, yeah, so I think I think that's how he would be remembered. As far as his um, successor is concerned, Josh, you, you um, wrote the story about her. Yeah, and she. Is, so it's no surprise. What's that her name, by the way? Susanna Dinage. Okay. Um, she came from Animal Planet, mm-hmm. um, and it's no surprise that she came from the world of television, because it's you know the Premier League, as John explained, sees itself first and foremost as a TV rights selling entity. It's not here to make rulings on player behavior or anything like that. It doesn't, it's not this kind of godlike uh, head office like the NFL, for instance. Um, so it's no surprise that she came from television and she faces some really interesting challenges now, one of which we've referred to before, which is keeping these owners together, keeping them, giving them a reason to stay in business. Obviously, when those TV payments are on the order of $200 million a year to each club, that's a pretty compelling reason. But if they start to believe that they can get that independently, that they don't actually need the league, as long as there are a few of them banded together, um, or if they can get a bigger slice of that pie, then uh, she has her work cut out for her. Um, but it, it's going to be interesting. She's the, she's the first woman to run the Premier League. Um, it's only had four chief executives in its 25-year history because uh, Scudamore was there for 20. Mm. Um, and now she comes into a role where the, she, and she finds a very different Premier League from the one that Scudamore took over in 1999. At that point, the TV money was growing, but Premier League clubs were still in a, at a point in Europe and um, where, among themselves where they were kind of sorting out the natural order. You know, that was a time when maybe two clubs competed for the, the Premier League title every year, Man United and Arsenal. Now she's looking at a much bigger pool of those clubs, probably six every year, and um, they all have much greater expectations over what the league owes them. Okay. I wanted to wrap up just by asking you guys, we touched on this a little bit when I asked you about the potential for a, a Super League in Europe, but where do you see the Premier League in five years? And what do you see as being different than what we see today? That's an interesting question because the the Premier League now is uh, – the the other challenge I was going to mention um, is that – and it's relevant to where the Premier League is going – is they have to decide how much they want to tie their destiny to cable television mm-hmm. um, and to domestic television. So the Premier League now is looking at a, a landscape where for the first time international rights are going to overtake – uh, domestic rights. And so that influences everything else they do. Does it mean that they have to service the international market almost more than they have service the, the saturated UK market? Does that mean, as La Liga is trying to do, taking games abroad? That idea of having a 39th game was controversial when it came up a, a decade ago for the first time, but it never really went away. Scudamore always thought that was a good idea. Ferran Soriano, the chief executive of Manchester City, looks at what La Liga is trying to do, playing a game in Miami, and says, this is a great idea. They would love to do it. Um, So I think in five years' time, we will definitely see something like uh, what the NFL does in the UK every year, where they're having games abroad or trying to do more things to go directly to the international market. Yeah, and I think I think the other question looming over the Premier League in the next five years is how it handles the Manchester City problem. And are we looking at five years at a league that looks a bit like France, mm-hmm. where one team is far so far and away ahead of everyone else that they coast to the league title every year and um, no one is particularly interested in 
watching outside of a sort of handful of you know their games um you know that that this premier league has never ever dealt with a team with the sort of scope of ambition and the depth of resources as manchester city and uh, i mean I, we, we saw just just yesterday the report that they want to build a new training base in london to 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 so they can go down early for their away games mm. whenever they travel to the south and i mean you you know already that that training facility will almost certainly be better than West Ham's permanent training facility. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, you know, where, where does it end? Like, where, when will Manchester City's kind of quest for domination end? And the, the kind of history of the Premier League, you know, as, as detailed in our book, is really, if you look at it in one way, it's kind of a story of the big fish that gets eaten by the bigger fish, that gets eaten by the bigger fish. But Sooner or later, you're like a blue whale, and there is no bigger fish. <laughs> and that's the question the Premier League has to wrestle with over the next five years. Like, where does this end? The book is called The Club, How the English Premier League Became the Wildest, Richest, Most Disruptive Force in Sports. The authors are Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg. Guys, congratulations, and thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Grant. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on SI.TV, Amazon Channels, and Fubo TV. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.